Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now Socrates famously said that philosophy begins in wonder, but the same thing could be said about life itself. When we look beyond the mundane and the normal, we encounter a world of wonder. Through the eyes of modern science, we see the vast reaches of the cosmos. We're told that there's a hundred billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars. When we read about the findings of modern science, we cannot help but be dazzled by the size and breadth and complexity of the universe. At last count, the observable universe was something like 44 billion light years. We constantly read stories about the mysteries of the cosmos, the dark matter and dark energy that make up something like 95% of all the matter and energy in the world. Not a day goes by when someone doesn't write an article about black holes and what's going on in those mysterious places. We read about whether there's livable planets like Earth out among the cosmos. But then when we look beyond this world of modern science, its world of impersonal particles, particles and forces, we see a few things that should make us, again, stand back in either greater awe. And this is the interconnectedness of the universe, the harmony and fine-tuning, the odd feature of the universe where we have billions of organisms somehow struggling for life, striving for life. And then moving beyond, we encountered we encounter events such as near-death experiences, mind over matter, precognitive dreams, remote viewing, mediumship, premonitions, faith healing, all these things that should not really occur in the modern world of materialistic science. And then we see something else that's also a bit puzzling for those who only believe in impersonal particles and forces, and that is humankind's search for meaning. Now, I'm happy to say that, that on today's show, we have Irvin Laszlo, who, over the past 60 years, has probably been the world's leading advocate in pushing the envelope of our understanding to incorporate the full breadth of human experience into a scientific worldview. Twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, he did receive the GOI Peace Prize in 2001. He's authored more than 70 books, translated into 20 languages, published more than 400 articles and research papers, including six volumes of piano recordings. He's the recipient of the highest degree in philosophy and human sciences from Sorbonne, the University of Paris, the coveted, the coveted artist diploma 
of the Frank Academy of Budapest, all sorts of additional prizes and awards, including four honorary doctorates. When you pick up a book on the new science of spirituality or whatever we're calling this area, the odds are that the ideas in that book were first articulated in one of Dr. Laszlo's many books. His new book is entitled Reconnecting to the Source, The New Science of Spiritual Experience, How It Can Change You and How It Can tra Transform the World. It's soon to be out, and we're happy to have uh, Dr. Laszlo on the show today, calling in from Italy. Doctor, welcome to the show. Well, I feel wonderful to be here. Look forward to talking with you. Yeah, well, I, I think that anyone who doesn't know about you should. And I believe that most people who tune into this show, Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, have heard of you or have read one of your books. And again, it's a real, it's a real pleasure to finally connect uh, with you on this show. Now, in reading about your background, I'd like to start off with some um, sort of context questions here. But in, in reading about your background, you started all out as a concert pianist. And you're now considered a spiritual intellectual leader of the world. Was there something in your background that triggered this change in your career path? Well, his, uh, purely biographically, the background was that my mother was a pianist, a piano, a piano professor at the academy, and my uncle, her brother, was a philosopher. Hmm. So as a child, I got both influences practicing with my mother to become a concert pianist, and then talking, having dialogues and discussions, I'm also listening to my uncle, talking about his view of the world and the problems of the world and the big questions of life. And so first I, I became a concert pianist, but then as I went along and was quite a successful concert pianist playing concerts all over the world, I started itching, sort of, uh, wondering about what more can I know about the world than what I know already, or what I couldn't just read in everyday publications. So I started thinking about the questions that my uncle asked, and that became a kind of a one-way street, where we get deep, more and more deeply into philosophical questions, as you mentioned. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of the world? Uh, how is it that we can behave and act and think in a way that's consistent with the world? How can we go the right way? How can we evolve? How can we flourish? How can we avoid mistakes? All these questions that you ask, well, all those things are very difficult to go back to ignoring them or to putting them in the background. And whereas being a concert pianist is a really a full-time, a full-life occupation, you can't indefinitely share them. And so after a while, the, the, the time came, the day came, then I had to decide. And as it happens, at that time, I got an invitation from Yale University to join them uh, on a visiting appointment. And the question was, do I accept it or not? Because if I accept it, then I can't, obviously, continue pursue my concert career. And, but uh, if I don't accept it, then I forego a big chance to meet people and to meet people and put through my, into my research. So I said, okay, I'll accept that invitation. And that's how it actually changed over from being a concert pianist to being an academic. Yeah, 
one thing that's really refreshing about your attitude is that you're not afraid, and in fact, I don't think you've been afraid for 67 years, of asking the big questions. And in, your, in, uh, in one of your books, Science in the Akashic Field, you say that the, your enduring interest has been to find answers to such questions as what is the nature of the world, what is the meaning of my life in the world. And I often think that one of the problems with our modern culture is that folks ignore the big questions. And, and we don't, and we sort of jump over the wonder of the world. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that topic. Well, while I'm playing the piano, you know, there's a wonderful way uh, when things go well, when you feel that you can express yourself through music. It's a wonderful way to let your mind run, run open and free and just to associate and to ask questions and to think of answers and to allow somehow answers to flow in. So I, that was a wonderful sensation while I was practicing as a concert pianist. And I never gave it up because I thought, I, I have this life. I want to find out about it as much as I can. I was not interested. I never have been in making a career or making money. I was interested in uh, finding out a little bit more about who I am, what the world is, what am I doing here. And so I just started asking questions and then I started making notes. More or less accidentally, I came across an editor, he came across me, and published my first book then, when I was just over 30 years old. And then from then on, it, uh, it was a one-way street. I had to go more and ask more and more questions and look for more answers. And I noted down what I felt was worthwhile to communicate, which wasn't every, everything, but I tried writing. I always rewrite my books dozens and dozens of times. Whatever I feel that it sits well, I have a good feeling about it, then I share it. And that's what I want to do. Don't you think that part of the... And, you know, this, this gets into uh, the concept of inspiration. But I'll, I've always thought that inspiration comes to those with an open mind and who are not afraid to break barriers. And it seems as if music has something common to that because a musician sort of puts their soul into this musical form. And has that, had, has that had any influence on the way you think? Because, again, I want to emphasize what is so impressive about your writing is how free you are in your thinking. You, you don't seem to be intimidated by what you're supposed to believe. Well, first of all, because I didn't have a formal education. Okay. I didn't go through the mill, as I it see. were. I see. I did get a PhD, but uh, I never attended classes for that. <laughs> I to, yeah. to write a dissertation. You know. That sounds good to me. And so, basically, I, I had no other concern uh, for most of my life than trying to satisfy my curiosity, my yearning to make sense of what there is. So, so I was not a I am not afraid. I'm not. I don't want. I'm not worried about about my colleagues, about about criticism. I hope that it generates what I write, what I think generates comment. Let's explore things together. So, so in the course of your career, guy, you've been you've been um, 
at this for, I'm losing track of time, but, but at least 50 years, 50, 60 years. And ha have your thoughts been what you would consider to be in a natural progression? In other words, you start with what I would call, say, a perennial truth and just build upon it? Or have there been certain junctures in your thinking that where you totally remade uh, your opinions? Well, you know, there's a famous saying by the philosopher Whitehead. He said, philosophy is a, is a foot, series of footnotes to Plato. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and yeah. so I said myself, uh, my writings are a series of footnotes to my initial ideas. Yeah, that's a good way um, to put it. Yeah. I have thought of everything that is worthwhile that I could ever think of already in the very beginning. Yeah. While I was playing the piano, these thoughts came to me. Yeah. I used a, a, a piano in my, in my I was at that time living in Switzerland. My study, there was a piano I was practicing. I had a little Remington manual portable typewriter sitting on a desk about two yards from the piano. And every once I would get up from the piano and start, down, start banging out some ideas that I had, then went back to the piano. And that went on for several years. And all the ideas that I ever had somehow came through that, through that uh, in alternation of music and thinking. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there is really, the truth is really simple, and it has something to do with oneness, unity, harmony, togetherness. And we go through time trying to put this truth into writing, into words that folks resonate with. And that's sort of, because I, I'm the same way, I mean, in college, I was a philosophy major, as I mentioned earlier, and in my first year in college, I sort of, you know, I'm reading Berkeley and Kant and Hegel and Descartes, and I sort of, um, sort of had, had this thought about how to, how to put this all together. I might also say that I also read some books on Darwin, by the way, that also, in quantum theory, but... Everything that I've done is very similar. It's it's trying to trying to uh, reach a higher level of understanding of the one truth, so it could be articulated. Is that something like what you're doing? So yeah, I think so. I think so. That's that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah, because the you know one of the struggles, and I I experience this every time I do one of these shows which is that there is so much good scholarship out there. For example, I had Michael Behe on the show a couple weeks ago, a couple shows ago, and I, the second time. And uh, there's been uh, Mike, uh, Tim Freaky, who I think you also know. Yes, uh, yes. And, and these guys, I mean, like, for example, Professor Behe is, is a real scholar, and he's still trying to break through. I mean, the, the folks that are on the intelligent design side of the equation, whether it's classically intelligent design or not, is it, you know is another question of whether it's the you know closed-minded uh, version of that of that um, school of thought is another question. But it's it's amazing to me that despite the scholarship. Uh, exhibited by many writers in this area, there has not, as far as I can tell, been a breakthrough 
in the modern science perspective. What do you think of that? Have you seen any changes in sort of breaking down the citadel of the materialistic um, worldview or paradigm? Um, a person whom I quote more than anybody else, of course, and I'm not the only person who, do, who does that, is Einstein. And he practically said everything that needs to be said about this kind of breakthrough. What's most remarkable about the world that it's coherent, yeah. that, that there is something that we can understand. And that we have to start from the beginning, not with preconceptions. You are here in the world, you are injected into the world, and you try to think now, what is it that you feel as well as think? What is it that you intuit about the world? And that is something that one has to come from inside, from ourselves. So I don't think there has been, a, to answer your questions, a progression in my thinking. I have, it has been a recapitulation and elaboration and articulation all along. Yeah. You know, yes. Yeah. Every book. Right, as I think it's, it's a one degree further, hopefully a one degree clearer, more encompassing, more detailed, more understandable, more comprehensible. That's what I'm trying to do. And the basic ideas, as you say, are not complex and not difficult. Here we are. We are a remarkable, coherent, one system, and we are surrounded in a universe that itself is a coherent oneness. Well, that's in, ancient intuition is being borne out by science. The new revolution that's coming through science is basically in the quantum dimension, which means that you are turning over the uh, old materialistic, mechanistic view that everything is the way, according to, has been ordained by uh, eternal, unchanging laws, and it's just a mechanism playing itself out. That view has been turned off over and now in the new view with mind, with consciousness, with information, with intuition coming into the picture, that new view is truly new in science. It's old for those of us who started with that view, but for, for mainstream science, it's new. Yeah, I think that what's, what's going on from, I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives you could take on the development of the modern science mind or the modern science theories. But one of the things that seems to be coming more to the forefront is this concept of fine tuning. And I think that is the ultimately will prove to be the Achilles heel. Because the problem and, and you guess you the problem is the same with Darwinian evolution as it is with the makeup of the atomic structure and the nucleus. Uh, of the atom and quantum theory, if you want to go there, which is where is the organizing force? Where is the source of the harmony? And that, I think, is the Achilles heel of, the, of materialism. As much as they try to wave their hands about their, like, for example, referring to natural selection or referring to some kind of all these force fields that are supposed to be organizing things, the, the problem still becomes what's the underlying organizing force in the force field and and so that's my that that's 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 my perspective and I'm just wondering you know what you think of that because I, I think that's the ultimate flaw of modern science is the lack of an organizing mechanism well that's what I'm writing my books about yeah. 
my latest books are exactly on that. Yeah. As a reconnecting to the source, I mean, the source is that organized, informed, I like to spell informed with a hyphen, informed, as David Bohm does, a quantum physicist. But uh, that's the source, you know, the information of the world. And that's what we, what we are, is this kind of an informed energy and, uh, and, and uh, not matter, but inf informed energy, information and energy together create a world. And that is uh, quite a different metaphysics than the mainstream science still coming from Newton. Darwin wasn't the right tech, except that he interpreted things in a, in a, in a way that we no longer can agree to, as purely the, the interpretation of, of the fittest, which actually wasn't so much his interpretation as that of his followers. He was talking more about love and, 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 and connection and, 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 and coming together in cooperation than he was talking about fitness and, and egoism. But there is this big changeover from the Newtonians to the Einsteinians and to the quantum physicists. By the way, not Newton. Newton himself was a deeply spiritual person who has these deepest intuitions. His letters conserved in the British Museum speak to that. But his followers went and took what he was for him was an explanatory principle, the laws of nature, and made it into a fetish, made it into the, the world principle, which Newton himself wasn't happy with. By the way, he wrote very interestingly about talking about what's behind it all. He, he at one point, uh, he quoted in, in, a, in a, by a researcher, said that there is uh, something like a spirit of vegetation in nature. You know, yeah. vegetation yeah. is something that grows, you know, that flowers. And he says, in all of the, of the universe, there is a spirit of vegetation. So that's something more than the known mechanistic laws. And that you are, what you're talking about, what I'm talking about, is finding that additional factor, which has been sometimes called a fifth field or a fifth force, uh, uh, which is now being researched again, because there is, we find things we cannot explain with the, with the known four universal field. So there is more to it than meets the eye, as Shakespeare said, there's more to it than we can even imagine and think of in the world. And, and we are gradually moving in, in that, taking that additional factor more seriously. Yeah, I, th I think that, uh, you know, a little bit of history helps. And uh, I'm, you know, you've, you've been doing this longer than I have, but there is some overlap in the sense that, uh, we 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 both have this sort of philosophy background, and our thoughts, our ideas, sort of uh, parallel. Um, even though you have about sixty nine more published books than I do, but but leaving that aside for the moment, the in terms of the history lesson here, I I tend to think that a lot of the Darwin success and and sort of the the recasting of Newton's legacy. Is a, was a reaction to biblical literalism, and and I still think we're seeing that because for folks like Richard Dawkins, in my mind, they think that if they give in in any way to something other than the strict 
uh, neo-Darwinian interpretation, they become biblical literalists. They become these closed-minded Bible thumpers. And the, the problem is, is that they're not reading the books very well. They're not reading folks like you and Ken Wilber who are talking about rising consciousness and go and sort of the evolution of the idea as opposed to the dichotomy, dichotomy being materialism or creationism. And I think that's something that you really articulate well and persistently that you have to evolve, you have to evolve the theory, you have to rise above, above the materialism and the creationism, and I'm using creationism as sort of a, as a sort of a stand-in term for biblical literalism. You have to rise above that and and have this alternate choice, which is I think what you're what you're doing. I mean, you you are saying you got to change the paradigm by moving beyond it. Is is that correct, uh, Doctor? Well, by paradigm, I mean not just science. Yeah. Thomas Kuhnman as a paradigm applying to scientists okay. and scientific theorists. But I think a new, a new paradigm is everything, the way we think of ourselves and of the world, uh, the, the, the totality, uh, the basic, the basic fine-tuning, to use the word that, uh, that you like, uh, the basic fine-tuning of our mind to the universe. That has to be time again, time and again, it has to be updated, revised, refined because there's more and more information is coming to us and we need to encompass all of that. But the key idea doesn't mean that it that really is affected. The key idea is either the world is a mechanism, it's like a big machine, or it's like a big thought. James Jeans, the famous astronomer about 100 years ago, said the world is more like a big thought than like a big, than, than a big mechanism. Right. And that that comes from an, from an astronomer, you know, yeah. and that's because we are recognizing that now. I mean, the, the, the world is not a mechanism. If, if anything, is something creative like a cosmic mind. But the, all that, the rest is interpretation. But you have to be open to the fact that the world is constantly creating itself. It's open. And that we can, it evolves, and we are part of that evolution, which is non-mechanistic, non-materialistic. It is self-created. It's based on information and bringing forth wholeness and oneness. That's the basic philosophy. Whatever we say more, it always comes back to that. Yeah, I want I want to get into the uh, your your notion of information uh, in a, in a couple minutes here. I, I want to just sort of underline a couple of things you've said, which is that many of the world's greatest scientists, and I'm talking about orthodox scientists such as Einstein, Planck, Schrodinger, have, have had a spiritual side to them. And I don't know who was the one, you probably know, who was the one that said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible? And I don't I, Einstein said okay, it among okay. yeah, us. Among yeah, he said, well, he also said, yeah, which, which, you, which when you think about it, and this, is a, this is sort of getting a little deep here, but how is it that we understand the world? I mean, that is an amazing thing. And this is why I started the show by talking about 
about the wonder of the world. There's, in my opinion, we need more folks taking a little um, sabbatical and reading a little bit of, of Plato, a little bit of, 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 of philosophy, because I think when you um, realize sort of the scope of the wonder, it really goes somewhere to elevating your consciousness and therefore your morality. And now this, that's something that is also in your book. And I'm going to hold that thought for a second because I want to ask you about your new book, which is, it's not out yet, right? Is it, is it out yet? Pardon? Published in March. Published in March. Okay. Published in March. Okay. So, okay. So the title of the book is reconnecting to the source. Uh, what, what was your inspiration for this book? Well, it's a hunch. Okay. That's what we need more than anything else is to find the solution to the crisis, to the transformation that is that we are undergoing. And that solution is not going to come from the outside. It's not going to come from above. It's going to come from below and from inside. And that means the source is in a, in a sense of, of new quantum mechanics and quantum theory. The source is a hologram is something, it's, it's what is in us, which is the, the key information on which the world is operating. It's all in us. It's a question of locating it and bringing it to consciousness and fine-tuning ourselves, yes, fine-tuning ourselves to it. So the idea was reconnecting, and I'm still working on reconnecting. I've just written an article for the Watkins Body, Mind, Spirit magazine, which will be a feature piece in, in the June issue. And I'm still working. I think that's the way I think, to, to, think, to think and to go forward, trying to reconnect to what there is in the basis, basically what there is in the world, finding the essential elements. By the way, I mentioned my first book, and my first book is called Essential Society. It's called the sub, subheadings, I mean, Essential Cosmos and essential thinking, I'm trying to find the, the key, the, the absolute, the key element to uh, which will unlock the, the rest of the mysteries. And that is, is, is coherence, that is oneness, that is expressed in the sensation that young people today call love, which is quite correct, which is the expression used by Jesus Christ, by, by Muhammad, as well as the Buddha and Tao. So it's there in religion, of course, and it's coming forth in science because it's in us. So what did I, why did I write this book? Because I think that what we should try to find collectively together as much as possible, explore what there is in us, which is a hunch, an intuition about the true nature of what the world is and who we are, and align ourselves with that because then perhaps we will not be making these horrendous mistakes of, of corrupting and society and degenerating nature, doing all those unsustainabilities that threaten our very survival today, going back into us. Perhaps a kind of a theological, religious quest, but quest in the context of science, of an inquiry into the, what we know about the universe. Because what we know is not just a mechanism. What we know, as we said a moment ago, is the universe is a creative thought. And that is in us. Our mind, our consciousness is part of that. 
Well, one of my yeah, well, one of my major criticisms of the I call it the material science worldview. You call it scientific materialism. Um, there's all sorts of descriptions of it, uh, but we're talking about the same thing. The worldview being where all that exists is matter in motion, no no um, mind, no intelligence, and no purpose, I might add as well. But one of the things that strikes me as a very dangerous and, in fact, underappreciated danger of, the wor- of this worldview is that by separating ourselves from the world, we, we disconnect ourselves from something I think we have a role in creating, and we sort of treat it as, as an alien object. You know, we poke and probe the heart, the human soul. We, we view other people as strangers. We view f- uh, foreigners as aliens. We do all these things without appreciating the connectedness. And that, to me, is disastrous. Uh, and your, your new book is, is very interesting. I might want to add here that in this, in this book, uh, Dr. Laszlo has managed to get all sorts of, of folks, such as Dean Radin, um, Lynn McTaggart, Gene Houston, and um, Lawrence Bloom, Barbara Marks Hubbard, to write of their own spiritual experiences. And it's really um, amazing the sort of similarity in these in these stories where you're talking about uh, credentialed, authoritative, uh, experienced authors, writers, thinkers who are sharing their own internal experiences. To me, showing there's something more to the world than we read about in the Orthodox science books. And it's, it's to your point, uh, Dr. Laszlo, where it shows the reconnecting to the source. And now I ask you the question, and we know that in certain religions you're not supposed to talk about God or the, or the Father uh, in, you know, it's the unnamed one uh, in, in, uh, in the Vendanta. There's, there's all sorts of mysteries about the, this, this uh, unmoved mover of sorts. But what can you say about what the source is? What is the source? Well, that's, uh, that's the question. Yeah. Because <laughs> the most fundamental and most difficult question. I think it's something like an intent, something like a project, something that's coming to be born and that's evolving. That's something that's pulling us together because it evolves together. I'm now currently writing, by the way, a book about the uh, scientific interpretation of the Akashic field, and Hmm. saying that the the three basic laws or regularities or features of the Akashic field being everything is connected, and then nothing is forgotten, everything is conserved, and that uh, all things are interacting together and evolving together. If you take these elements, then you describe a, almost a metaphysical reality, which turns out to be the most basic 
realness that we can get out of contemporary science at the same time. So I'm, I'm interested in, in what this source is, whether it's in, in the embedded in an Akashic field. It's the old people, you know, the old Hindu seers saw, uh, thought of the Akashic field as a dimension that's prior to and encompassing all the other dimensions, the air, water, fire, and earth. And the, the, the Akashic dimension, the Akasha, is a deeper dimension, it's a cosmic dimension. So all this, all this is, is, is really saying, I can only guess, like you can only guess, we can only guess, but it's important to guess, important to ask the question that you ask and try to see what is the answer that you get. And I would say in a, almost in a subjective way that the answer that feels good, that feels right because there are no absolute proofs in this regard. It's the biggest question of all, because it tells you who we are. I think this source is by nature, I don't know what it is, but by nature it is a hologram. Why? Because in a hologram, all the information in the whole system is present in every part of it. And I think in us individually, as in every atom and every particle, all the information that makes the universe what it is, is present. And so that's the search that we're dedicated to, finding that key, not as something, uh, as a formula that once you find it, it's there, but finding that there is a key and it's creative, it has an intent to move forward, to evolve and to join together. And oneness, wholeness and love are very good sensations, expressions of this creative source. You used the term... Um, Akashic field, and it is, you have written a lot on this. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with your use of the Akashic field, what is the Akashic field? And I hate to ask you this, but how is it related to source? Well, the Akashic field is an expression. It's difficult to formulate these things. But I think the Akashic field is an expression a manifestation of the source in the universe. We can start with that idea that now in quantum physics, through David Bohm, is, is generally accepted, that there is a deeper level of reality which Bohm called the implicate order. And that is coming to expression in the explicate order. And we know that it's the observer by observing a, a phenomenon can make it translated from actual, from potentiality into actuality, but without getting into, into technical details, the idea being that there is a deep dimension where all the information, where all the motivation, all the spirit, if you like, that is present and is being expressed in the world, it is there together in oneness. It's a Platonic world, it's a world of Plato, it's a world of, of the David Bohm's quantum science, it's the world, I think, of the Akashic field. It's that field where, that contains everything in wholeness, in oneness, which is then becoming expressed or manifest in the world as we interact with the world. We know that in modern science, it's littered with fields. I think it started with the electromagnetic field. And then we've got the quantum field, 
and now we've got the Higgs field. And if you keep looking, there are all sorts of fields. And it's, it's interesting because I think these fields, at least the modern ones, sort of derive from the, the quantum notion that there is not a um, complete separation between particles, that there is interconnectedness in, in, in what we view as particles or energy. So the, the notion that there is a field of, I'm going to call it a field of order, coherence, that's, that's really what the Akashic field is, it's Akashic field. It's really a, it's, it's really sort of a field that is connecting things, but on a personal, more spiritual level than just connecting a bunch of particles together. Well, the connection between a bunch of particles is the connection that we feel in us. Right. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the articulation of belongingness in the universe. Yeah. It's an attractor. I call it these days an attractor because yeah. that's acceptable to science. It's a term of something that is uh, biasing or moving things at random interactions. So an attractor are being cre uh, creating order. It's something that is, uh, I can only say something, you know, we can call it an attractor. I call it, by the way, a holotropic attractor yeah. because it's it's oriented toward wholeness, holos, and tro tropism is a tendency or a direction of moving, an attraction of moving in some particular direction, moving toward wholeness in the universe from the Big Bang to the present time and into the future. It's a, it's a work of a kind of an attractor which you can personalize as God, as, as, as a divine being. You can also keep it within immanent, keep it within nature, within the cosmos as an attractor. But there is something more than just a random mechanical interaction in the world. And that something whole, something more is oriented toward complexity, coherence, and therefore wholeness. Yeah, now, now let me put a, a sort of... Um interpretation on this and there have there have been a number of books along this line and I think Dean Radin uh, in his Entangled Minds book got to this but he's not the only one which is that there are certain phenomena in modern science the classic being action at a distance and the entangled particles uh, issue <clears throat> that they then use that um, Result that experimental result showing that widely separated particles uh, between which information could not have been conveyed even by the speed of light are, are nevertheless in coherence. And then they use that fact to analogize to personal experiences such as remote viewing, uh, intuition, uh, the the uh, my, the uh, the talk between uh, different twins, for example, you're you're feeling if a loved one dies, sort of like this personal kind of connectedness. And so, my interpretation of this is that the akashic field is something that is combining all of this phenomena, as opposed to just the widely separated electrons in the entangled 
minds in, in, in the entangled particle realm, right? I mean, that, that's sort of what the Akashic field is. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's that underlying field that does connect everything, including our souls, our spirits, our minds. Well, that's a very intuitively meaningful idea. Hmm. I subscribe to this, yes, but this is the, the way that you express it, the way we can apprehend it, the way we can accept it and work with it, because it's an intuition at the same time that, that, that it works. And all of practically all of quantum science these days is based on the idea, which is then also called non-locality. Right. Things are not, not limited or restricted to being here and now. Things, in some sense, are everywhere and at all times. This is not locality. And so this that means that they are connected. That means that the world is not a mechanical aggregate. It's a whole. And we, we have to better learn that and, and live accordingly. Then we wouldn't have all these horrendous problems that are looming up in our future now. Well, it's, it's unbelievable because uh, how long has it been since the spiritual writers have been telling us the very same thing. I mean, this is the, I mean, you go back to the Upanishads and, um, and the Rig Veda, uh, that's sort of exactly what they said, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that Atman is part of Brahman. I mean, it's, it's the same, I mean, the, the spiritualists have been telling us this for, for millennia. And, it hasn't quite infiltrated our brains, I think, because of the dominance of this mechanical worldview. Well, I think not to be, but the fact that uh, we are operating on the basis of believing in science. Yeah. So this uh, view, this holistic view, intuitive view, was coming from beyond science, and it was not confirmed. Any, in any evident way by science. So uh, this, the reason is not because something is wrong with the view, is something is that we don't believe it, it's not credible. We, we assign credibility to what is so-called quote-unquote science, that means based on observation, controlled observation and experiment and repeatability and so on. But now science is moving in, that's the big new development. The old ancient insight, which we want to reconnect, and that's the idea of reconnecting to something which is a timely, timeless insight and intuition, that ancient insight is now becoming verified or validated by science, by the new science, with its non-locality, with its uh, uh, instant interconnection. So that's a big news. That's uh, a very hopeful development. Yeah, and I think that you put your, you know, you put your finger on it that the, you know, the evidence is building um, to an interconnectedness. When you add the interconnectedness onto the onto the fine tuning, we are in a place where the theories of modern science are not adequate to explain the the workings of the world, and it is, you know, here we are trying to to change uh, the mindset, at least I am, trying to change the mindset of modern science because, or modern scientists, because I think that to reach this higher level of 
of, of uh, consciousness, which translates into a better world, you have to change signs from mechanical uh, worldview to the spiritual worldview. Uh, and frankly, uh, Doctor, I haven't come to terms with what we should be calling this new worldview. I mean, what's what's your favorite? What's your what's your favorite description? Because I don't think spiritual is the right word, and I don't think new I don't think new age is the right word either. So, what's what would you call this new? I mean, you call it the integral theory of everything. What, well, at, at one time I, I called yeah. it that, but that, that's a particular attempt within okay. science to to do that. I, I refer to a new paradigm. Okay. A paradigm which is based on precisely on coherence, on evolution, and on the sensations of belonging. It's 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 a different paradigm. It starts from the bottom. It's not something you foist onto the old paradigm. You can't take a Newtonian world or even an Einsteinian and Darwinian world and just say here is some spiritual factor added to it. You know. I mean, this factor is either all there is or it isn't there. Yeah. Now, you, you have this uh, concept that we've talked about, and it is in, is in most of your more recent books, at least, and that is the information. And, yes. and, and you mentioned it uh, by reference to Bohm and the implicate order. What is information? Well... It's, there is also a technical and as well as an intuitive answer. It's the forming effect. It's the it's the it's the attractor. But forms. I think more technically, I think I would go with Bohm's interpretation that the implicate order, before it is transformed into the explicate order, before because it's manifest, it it is a constant source a constant source of forming, of creativity. So information is something that forms. So the manifest universe is formed by a deeper level. And that deeper level is called the implicate order, call it the platonic realm, or call it the higher consciousness, or, 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 the, Akashic, or the Akasha, perhaps, you see. All of these things is basically is the heart and soul and spirit of the universe is on that deeper level, and it informs, it shapes, and it guides the manifest world. It's a question for us to recognize this guidance and to fine-tune our behavior, our thinking accordingly. The, while you're here, I'm going to ask you another tough question. I can't help myself, which is the, the source. It, it seems like all these things are related. The source, the Akashic field, information. The question is, are these things independent of consciousness? Well, as I said. <laughs> I told you it was, I told you, I mean, I, I can't help because that, that, comes, that comes front and center to me when I, when I read this. Um, because that to me is the, is the big question. Because if it's independent of consciousness, then we have to find a organizing force that's outside of consciousness. I think the whole idea of independent of, it's a false idea. It's, it's, there's no such thing as one thing being independent of another thing. Yeah. Consciousness is 
I like to use this, this image for consciousness or mind. It's the internal readout yeah. of, of a reality. When, when you look at things from the outside, which is we are not outside, there is no such thing as an outside, but relatively take the position of an observer. You see waves, you see vibrations, you see, you see particles, uh, you see interactions and so on. And you see the entire structure of modern physics and biology and, and, the, and the other sciences. But when we are inside, when we look at the world from the inside, trying to apprehend it, the way the world feels, then you're operating with or from consciousness. So the, and there is an external reading of the world, which is the laws of nature and is the physical world. There's the internal reading of the world, which is mind, which is consciousness. It should be ideal, it should be the same thing. Looked at it from a different perspective. So I don't think that has to do with two things. That was not a question of being independent of, because there's nothing to be independent of. There are two things. One is expressed, seen from the inside, the other one from the position of the observer. But even the observer is using their own consciousness to observe. So, well, there's, there's nothing entirely outside, as I said. Right, right. Well, that's, the observer's well, consciousness, is, but it's, it takes the, uh, the, the, the perspective of being outside of it, right. and it tries to describe I see, the I see, I see, yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay, that that's 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 a good point because one of the one of the things that is probably um, one of the more difficult concepts for I think philosophy students to get their head around, brain around is the notion of can the mind know something other than itself, and that that was the whole that was one of the main themes of the um, German idealists, and I don't want to get too technical here. But it's an important point for me because it aligns with much of what we talk about in consciousness. And the question being, can consciousness know something other than itself? And I think I agree with you that, not that my agreement means anything, but um, that it's really a false question. Because we are always experiencing the world through consciousness and that nobody other than ourselves is experiencing the world through consciousness. Therefore... Maybe we could have an internal perspective, which is a subjective perspective, and then we we observe others, we observe the world um, from the from the outside, but we're still um, viewing it through consciousness. That's a pretty that's a pretty cool thing. The reason I, I mention that is because I always find I think that, and this is just me talking. I think that if if we move the notion of source, if we put it up in the sky. It sounds a lot like the biblical God. If, no, but source, source is, behind, is below. Not, not yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so I, I don't want to, I want to make sure that on this show, I, I think I want to bring us down to earth here a little bit because one of the, I mean, we, we've been talking about these concepts and I do think this is important because you got to have the theory together in order to fit the pieces into the, into the puzzle. But one of the things that's very impressive about what you've been doing in your in your life and even and perhaps well, I think your entire career is you you then use these principles that we've been talking about. 
the, the interconnectedness, the information, the holo, holotropic attractor, to say, to bring it down to earth and say, we've got to build a better world out of this. And you have this notion of, of, of critical mass. And can you just describe how it's connected, how this work that you're doing, that you've done throughout your career on the Akashic field, connects to the real world, connects to international politics and and hunger and, you know, um, animosity between people. Where, where is the connection in your mind? Well, okay, that's a kind of a concluding, culminating yeah. kind of Yeah, that's question. why I'm doing it. I would just say that when you ask the question, can we know anything other than our consciousness? I would be quite happy to say no. <laughs> We cannot, but we, but we don't need to because our consciousness has, is everything, right. has all the information. I talked about a hologram, you know. Our consciousness is an expression, as a manifestation, a projection, if you like, of a hologram. So uh, if we know our consciousness, we know the world. And the world, we can only know the world through our consciousness. And that's not in the old way. Our consciousness is enclosed in our, in our head. In, in, in our skull, the consciousness is part of this interconnected whole world in which, which is based on, on information and energy and not on, not on matter and separation. So anyway, so I say fine, we know, we know our world through our consciousness and therefore if you know our consciousness, we know our world because we are a hologram. The world is a hologram and we are a projection of the hologram. Okay, so how does this help us? is simply by the old, going back to the old time-honored recognition that the answers to our problems are in us, not outside of us, not in the hands of others, but in our own, our own being. This, this what I call the new paradigm, you ask, what do we call it? We call it the holistic paradigm, I don't know yet what exactly we need to, we need to name it, but it's the new paradigm which I'm trying to describe in as simple a word, a very complicated process, but make it as simple as possible. And it's not really a simple thing. Right. But it, it does have some elements that are, that are simple. This oneness, this evolution, this striving toward, toward, toward coming together, all of this. If we adopt that perspective, then we simply start looking at the world in a different ways. In, in this new book that, you, that we're talking about, the, the reconnecting to the source, I have a whole chapter uh, actually written uh, very closely, in co written in, co in cooperation with an old friend of also of yours, Kingsley Dennis. We were talking about the, the new idea of wholeness coming through in the world in various aspects, in business and politics, in, in society, in education, uh, in, in fashion, and ev ev in, uh, everywhere, actually, there is a new sense of openness and wholeness coming through as an antidote, practically, to the degeneration, to the crisis, to the, to the radical disappearance, but at what price, of the old. So there is this countervailing tendency. We are moving toward a different idea of the world. If we just don't destroy our environment to the point where human life and higher life becomes impossible or, or possible only in a very limited way, if you don't do that, 
then we'll graduate to a higher level of being because we are achieving a higher level of consciousness, of conscious awareness, of the oneness, of the wholeness that we exemplify, that evolution is moving toward. So I believe at be becoming the, 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 what, becoming what we want the world to be, like Gandhi said, means becoming ourselves that, that we want the world to be. So we, we are changing, we are becoming, and that's the whole hopeful development. There's a race with time. If we don't destroy the world, if you come up with this new consciousness, this new philosophy, this new feeling, this new sensation, of wholeness and who we are and how we relate to the world and non-mechanistic and not not uh, a purely natural uh, selection based uh, merciless universe but a universe oriented toward oneness if you don't destroy this in time we will develop a higher level of existence for humankind and for all life on this planet yeah, that is yeah that is uh, very well put, and I think coming from you, it it means a lot, and we should all uh, I think sign up because we're not just talking about an abstract principle here, and that's that's what's so important. This is not some kind of intellectual construct that's only for the academicians. Uh, what we're really talking about, and I think what you're talking about, is that when you involve the human soul into your new worldview, into your new paradigm, now you are connected to science and you're connected to the truth and you have a stake in the venture. And I think that materialism, not both the economic version and the scientific version, uh, are, are, are very dangerous because they separate the human soul from the world. That's my big complaint. That is ultimately the problem. And so you treat it as a foreign object. And when you get into the environmental degradation, that is a shining example of the problem. I mean, you know, like for example, we could, this is a whole other topic, and I, and I am an environmental lawyer for what it's worth. The plastic in the ocean is just, is, is just terrible. I mean, it's, it's a crime. The fact that uh, we're, we are finding all this all this garbage from fast food society in in the ocean it just shows that we're not respecting the wonder that's the world. So, uh, Doctor, I want to thank you very much for for taking your time. I know that you have other commit other commitments. Uh, in closing, is there anything that you'd like to add uh, to what we've discussed on this show. You've talked about your new article coming out in Mind Body, in the Mind Body magazine, and you're working on another book. Is there something else that you would like to add in closing? Well, just that I am cautiously optimistic. I think uh, that there is a development which involves the human soul or human spirit, which is has a big, big payoff in environmental affairs as long as we don't feel the hurt when we see some dirt in, in, on, on the beach and in the water, in, uh, in pollution in the air, as long as we don't feel that as being a wound in our own body, 
we are going to rationalize it and not really act on it to say it's somebody else's responsibility or we can make it do with it as it is. We need to become that wholeness. And that means feel it, oneness, have the, have the oneness with it. So that, I think, is the last thing I want to say. Become the change you want to see in the world, as Gandhi said. And as the new sciences say, there is no, not you and the world. You are the world. We all are. And I think that is a, a great way to end the show. Uh, Dr. Laszlo, I really appreciate your time. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.